It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So I have a brand new group of students uh, in front of me this morning, and it's always sort of strange. When we get to the fall program, if we're doing a, in our training series, we, Nathan and I like to do one series throughout the whole training series. At least we tried that last summer, and it was really fun. I did World War I, spiritual lessons from World War I. And uh, that was a lot of fun, but it's interesting for a group coming in if they haven't been staying up with the Daily Thunder because we sort of start. Like today, I'm starting in uh, session 25 uh, in a series, but I always like to think that my episodes can stand on their own two feet. Like if you just happen to grab one, it doesn't matter. Hopefully, in and of itself, it's a complete idea and a complete message. But I want it also to intrigue you to let you know that this period of time that we're covering, which in this series... It's called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. We're going through history from 1914 to 1974. And you could say, what random dates those are. And it sort of seems like it. They're very significant dates in American history, though. 1914 is the start of World War I. 1974 is an event called Watergate. Uh, I think you could almost call it uh, the watershed moment when Americans began to realize they did, could not have complete trust in their government if they didn't have that already. And so this period of time is going to define the world in which we live in a profound and powerful way, in ways that we oftentimes don't realize. And we have a tendency to think that there's just an agenda today, and there's, there's a lot of repercussions. There's a lot of overcorrections that have taken place in our culture. And even this message today will show you at least some of that. But this, this message today is a, is a unique one. I've been approaching it for a long time because I, I've seen it for a long time in the outline. And it's a hard one to know how to deal with because it's about a character named Joseph McCarthy. And Joseph McCarthy, for those of you that uh, have not been around that long uh, on this earth, you may not know who that is, but if you have been, he's a very, very significant character in this time period and in the past 100 years. In fact, I would say he's possibly one of the most controversial characters in American history. And there's reasons for that, and it's a tough one to know how to deal with him. And so the way I'm even going to approach it is unusual. It's from a different angle than I originally thought I would go through it. So uh, my, oh, there, my, oh, oops, uh, my clicker finally decides to start working, and then it goes to two. So part 25, McCarthy for president. Uh, Joseph McCarthy is never going to be elected president of the United States, and however, that does not mean it wasn't in his mind. Uh, he is going to build a platform in the early 1950s, and he is going to be one of the most popular men uh, in the United States at the end of 1953. And so we're going to pick up the story, uh, oh, sorry, at the end of, yeah, at the end of 1953 going into 1954. But we're going to pick this story up sort of in 1953, but there's a few things that have been happening. You know, post-World War II, we have this rebuilding season. We also have something known as the Red Scare, where there's a very significant concern of a communist infiltration into uh, our country. 
and it's not unfounded. There actually was a very real movement of infiltration taking place. To what degree and to the degree that it got noted, I, you know, those are arguable points. But uh, this is going to lead to a time in American history where a lot of people look back and shake their heads and go, I'm sure we could have walked through that a little better. So I'm going to, uh, first of all, uh, show a little segment of scripture here where you're going to see John talking, the Apostle John talking about two different men in the church. A significant contrast that he's going to create, which is interesting. And these are both church-going men. One does evil and one does good. First of all, it's hard for us to imagine that a church-going man could do evil. I mean, just, just right there, that doesn't make any sense, right? However, the way the church is made up is just because you're in a church does not mean you're healthy. And that's an important thing for us to digest and know. It, the church itself isn't what makes you healthy. It's what's going on on the inside that makes you healthy. So this is in the th third book of John 1, uh, verses 9 through 12. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from us, from all, and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Very interesting and in even how this is written. Because you're going to see this good-evil contrast, and Diotrephes is going to be linked with the evil. He's in the church, and, but he's desiring preeminence, which means he wants to be above the church. He wants to be in charge of the church. He's not even going to receive John. John, I mean, who's one of these nice guys in church history, right? I mean, he's going to lean on Jesus' chest. You know, you get this soft-hearted man, and Diotrephes won't even receive him. And then he's going to see that contrast with Demetrius, who has a good testimony. So in other words, he has a testimony of doing that which is good. And that's in direct contrast that we're going to see. In this story, I'm sort of going to create the same contrast. That within the system of government, ironically, both the men I'm going to talk about today are in the same political party. They're both Republicans. And they're very different one from the other. And they're both... McCarthy's actually going to campaign for the, other, the man I'm going to be describing, who is going to become president of the United States in 1952, and his name is Dwight Eisenhower. So he was a five-star general, I'm sure he still was, even at the time he was president, but a five-star general in World War II, going to be his significant accomplishment, I think that most people remember, is he's going to be the commander of the D-Day operation and the invasion of Normandy. And but he is going to succeed so brilliantly in that endeavor. It's, I, I did an in-depth study of that whole operation in my series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II. And I have to admit, I understand why our nation was thinking, yeah, if we're going to have a leader, let's have Dwight Eisenhower. So both of these men, Joseph McCarthy and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, are Christian men. And they both are in the same party. And yet the way that they are going to handle their positions are very different, sort of like this contrast I'm creating here. The story of two men, Joseph McCarthy versus Dwight 
Ike Eisenhower. She'll notice I'll call him Ike uh, from this point uh, forward because that's, that's what he went by. So Ike Eisenhower. Uh, baiting Ike to swing a punch. So we have McCarthy is going to actually campaign with Eisenhower and as far as I know, happy that he becomes president. But right at this same time, McCarthy is recognizing something. He's tasting something and it's power. He's tasting influence. And some people respond to power and authority well and some people do not. And I've watched that my entire life where I've seen people that are very pleasant to be around and then when they get a position of leadership, they become rather honorary and they become domineering and controlling. And have you ever heard the statement, uh, give someone an inch and they become a ruler? Uh, and it's sort of like that. Uh, and McCarthy, he's a hard guy to deal with because conceptually, ideologically, I get him. I understand his concern. He's concerned about atheistic communism making its way into the American system of government. And he believes that he has evidence that this has actually happened, that there are deep plants in the government at that moment that need to be rooted out, and that we have a serious problem because he's protective of the Judeo-Christian heritage that we share as Americans, where we honor our God. I mean, Ike Eisenhower is gonna come into the presidency and he's going to institute the phrase, in God we trust. It's gonna go on all our coins. That's in the Ike Eisenhower term. This 1950s period is a season of godliness. It's a season of a pursuit of an America that fears and trembles before God. Now, that might have been more of a religious thing than a real genuine revival, but that's what's happening in our country at this time. So the 50s, a classic statement is like, oh yeah, the 50s, and it was black and white America, you know, hey, let's, I wish I could go back to the 50s. I'm not exactly sure if we would really want to go back to the 50s, but that's the time period we're in, and McCarthy is going to taste something. He's going to taste power because the nation is turning towards him and they're identifying with his concern, which is why it's called the Red Scare, the red meaning communism. And so everyone's stirred up, everyone's afraid, they're looking at their neighbor going, I wonder if they're communist. And everything is phobia-based in this time. And McCarthy becomes the chief, the leader of this movement. He identifies or symbolizes that entire concern that something is trying to sneak into America and rob the soul of our country. And I don't know if you can see the parallel with today, but this is a very similar thing that I would say the church is vulnerable to feeling and being swayed by today, as if it is a new thing, that America is a great nation that is God-fearing, and yet the enemy is trying to come in and snake out that, that heart, that, that soul of our country. So. If you could have felt that at all today, you can at least understand what they were feeling in the 50s. So McCarthy has a certain way in which he is going to leverage his fame and his renown. And that is he is going to bait people and he is going to accuse people and everyone sort of loves it. It's almost like one of those boxers that gets into the ring and does his little dances and makes fun of the other boxer and the crowd's like cheering because they enjoy the showmanship of it. 
And in a strange way, that's McCarthy. He has this showmanship quality and everyone's cheering him on, which then only causes him to get worse, if I could say it that way. One of my dad's famous statements was, uh, when, you know, like say I would crack a joke and people would laugh, my dad would say, don't encourage him. That was, my dad, you know, the last thing you want to do is encourage, you know, a young kid, you know, that's working on his sense of humor. You know, he's doing his knock-knock jokes. It's like, maybe you shouldn't laugh at him, lest you encourage him to keep going. And that's sort of McCarthy. He was encouraged. And he's going to grow bigger than life. He, he really is. So I, I didn't even cover this. Baiting Ike to swing a punch. So... Ike Eisenhower's in a very difficult position, and I'm going to go into that. But he's the president of the United States, and there's a certain dignity that we expected back then, I don't know if we expect it anymore, of our president. There's a certain way that they handle themselves. And McCarthy is, in a sense, spitting in his face, sort of saying, you're going to do something about that? You see, McCarthy is positioning himself to be the president. He, he ever, and you almost feel it in the nation. It's like, why do we have Ike Eisenhower as president? We should have voted McCarthy in. This is our guy, and McCarthy's sort of agreeing with it. It's like, yeah, I'm the far better character for this. And so you almost, my, my mental picture is, you know, McCarthy spits in Ike's face, and then Ike, as the president, has to behave as the president. And so it's going to create this great drama, all right? So that's why I'm calling it McCarthy for president, even though that's actually, well, he never ran for president, but he sort of was running for president, baiting Ike to swing a punch. America's newest president in 52, Dwight Ike Eisenhower. So there he is, nice guy. You know, look at that smile. Meet Ike's greatest threat, Joseph McCarthy. Listen to this quote from Milton Eisenhower, who was Dwight's brother. Ike loathed Senator McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, as much as any human being could possibly loathe another. So one of the fun things about history that I've really enjoyed is being able to see things that you never could have seen in the moment, like all sorts of journal entries, diary entries. You have access to the president's personal letters. I mean, so I was able to go through Ike Eisenhower's personal letters to his friends, to his brother about this issue. I mean, that's, that's a pretty cool, because if, if Ike is the president right now, I guarantee you I have no access to those letters, let alone could I ever put them up on a screen for Daily Thunder and say, hey, everyone, listen to this. And yet, in history, we're able to get perspectives that we couldn't otherwise. So Joseph McCarthy, one of the most controversial men in American history. So there's our, our friend, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, and if you asked me what I think of Joseph McCarthy, I almost feel like I would rather uh, come up with an excuse not to answer that question. It's a, it's a very challenging one to answer because ideologically, I understand him. I understand what he was concerned about, and I agree. Practically, like how he is going to live it out and how he is going to implement his belief system, I completely disagree with. And it puts me in an awkward position because by denouncing Joseph McCarthy, I feel like I'm playing into the hands of everyone else to say, like, see, there was never a communist threat. It's like, well, there actually was. It's been evidenced in 1995 when the Venona papers were released, which were the secret communications between the Soviet government and their, and their connections here in America. We were capturing, the NSA was capturing them, and we interpreted them and decoded them. But we didn't release that until 1995. 
There was communist activity and it was very, very dense and dangerous. What McCarthy was recognizing was true, but the way he handled it caused us all to look the other way and go, you know what, I'm not with him. And that's part of the challenge we face historically is how we handle real issues matters. And Diotrephes, who loved the preeminence, was the wrong guy to have handling the issues, is the way I would almost say it. So listen to his resume. He's a conservative senator from Wisconsin, a remarkable communicator, an outspoken Christian, extremely passionate about preserving the integrity of our constitutional government and eradicating the radical invasive effects of atheistic communism. Go Joe! I mean, that, that's a pretty good list of qualities and qualifications. There's some of you from Wisconsin like, yeah, you better believe it. That, there's some good stuff on that list there. <clears throat> listen to John Wayne. So if you're looking for an endorsement, listen to this one. Senator Joseph McCarthy was one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. So do you understand when I say he's a very controversial character? There's some people that love him. And there's some people that would consider him one of the greatest demons in American history. And sometimes that's going to expose your political persuasions because Republicans are going to be a little kinder towards Joseph McCarthy and Democrats are going to be very unkind towards Joseph McCarthy. And that's why it's hard to answer the question because if I am unkind towards him, that's like, huh, that's, uh, is, are you showing your political persuasions, Eric? You see, I don't like how he handled the situation. And yet I understand why He's handling the situation. So it, it puts me in an impossible situation to know how to answer the crazy question. Listen, here's uh, Joseph McCarthy's famous quote that's going to start uh, this whole red scare. The State Department is infested with communists. I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working in shaping policy in the State Department. Do you understand how that could trigger some concerns uh, in our country? Are you saying we have communists? We don't just have one. We have 205 in the State Department. Uh, okay. And he was never, our, the challenge that Joseph McCarthy is going to deal with is he's never able to expose any of them. He's having a terrible time because the FBI, and I've studied the whole backside of the FBI on this, is actually not excited about how he's going about it either. And so they're going to hinder and not supply any evidence to Joseph McCarthy. The poor guy is sort of hanging out there with all of his hollering and, and boasting about his numbers. And he's going to change this number. I think it was to 57 after a little bit of time too, which doesn't translate very well, guys. When you go from 205 to 57, I mean, 57 is a lot, right? But he still isn't going to be able to prove anything. And so it's going to look like a lot of hot air. Here's Joseph McCarthy's campaign slogan in 1952. McCarthyism is Americanism with its sleeves rolled up. You know, I like it. I like the attitude. I, I, it sounds, uh, you know, sort of John Wayne-esque. That's probably why John Wayne liked it. I get, bet John Wayne gave him uh, that in the first place. McCarthy was really good at what he was doing. But to get the crowds, he compromised. Big time. So seeing that Joseph McCarthy is defending the soul of our nation 
Should we overlook his insulting, domineering personality? Should we turn a blind eye to his alcoholism and drunkenness, his general indecency and complete lack of honor and decorum? Should we overlook his lack of substantial evidence and his many overstatements and often foundless accusations? There are a whole bunch of people that he is going to accuse that had nothing to do with the Communist Party. And yet he is going to be naming names all the time and it's going to ruin people's reputations. He's going to misuse his power. Being so dogmatically right that you are dramatically wrong. There, it is very possible to be correct with your policy, to be correct with your thoughts, and to be completely wrong with your behavior. One of the things my sister used to say is that you can speak the truth, but if you don't speak it the way Jesus would speak it, you're actually doing harm and not helping anyone. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Imagine you spoke truth, but you didn't speak it the way Jesus would speak it. Why would that harm? It's still truth, isn't it? Truth is a person, which means it's not just the facts or the data of truth. It's the nature of truth that matters as well. And when you separate out the data and the facts from the nature, you end up with something that is potentially vulnerable to blowing someone up. Truth in and of itself must have the nature mixed in with it. And there's a way in which God speaks to us. There's a way in which God relates to us. So here's an illustration, uh, Martha-ism. Ah, I had it in my notes. I changed it to McMartha-ism instead of McCarthy. McCarthyism was the term back then. So I was going to have McMartha-ism and you guys were going to laugh, but now I, I didn't get it up on the screen. Uh, Martha-ism or McMartha-ism, uh, being so right that you missed the point. So the story of Mary and Martha, remember Jesus comes to visit and Martha is bustling around the kitchen and I always picture her having her meatloaf in the oven. I, I don't think she had an oven like we would uh, understand ovens uh, today. But she's bustling about, she's perturbed and anxious because I mean the son of God is coming over for lunch. Do you blame her? Now, when she sees Mary sitting in there in the living room at Jesus' feet, can you understand why she might be a little perturbed and upset over that? Now, is Martha wrong? This is an interesting question for all of us because Jesus is going to rebuke Martha and correct her and say that Mary is more right. However, is Martha wrong? Hospitality, is that a wrong thing? Is it bad to make sure the meatloaf doesn't burn? Is it bad to uh, set a table and to make it look nice? Is it bad to show that sort of diligence in making those that come to your house feel welcomed, loved, and cared for? What she's doing is actually right, but she has placed something that is less important in life as higher than something that is more important in life. And the same thing we're going to see in McCarthy is he is right ideologically, but he is wrong in his behavior. He is going to badger people. He is going to be furious with people. He is going to, he's a very sharp wit, and he's going to use that wit to harm a lot of people and to accuse a lot of people. And it's just like, well, okay, you're on the right track, buddy, 
but you're misusing this platform, this position of strength. He wanted attention, just like Diotrephes. He desired the preeminence. He's in the church. Hey, you think that would cover a whole bunch of sins, right? Just being in the church. However, he's going to go down in Diotrephes, the poor guy, is going down in history as a guy who longed for the preeminence. He doesn't translate well throughout history because of it. And the same is true with McCarthy. So we have the Red Scare in the early 50s. Joseph McCarthy in 1950, uh, this is, that's that same statement. I'm going to read it again so you can sort of get into the mood again. The State Department is infested with communists. I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. So the MillerCenter.org said it this way. In the early 1950s, American leaders repeatedly told the public that they should be fearful of subversive communist influence in their lives. Communists could be lurking anywhere, using their positions as school teachers, college professors, labor organizers, artists, or journalists to aid the program of world communist domination. Now here's what's interesting. You have a certain sector of society that would say that isn't true at all. They never, the communist movement was never trying to do that. And then you have the other side of it, which is just like, they were really doing that. And the communists were everywhere. And yet, because of how this went down with McCarthy, everyone is now going to say, look, we will never talk about that again. Let the communists be, basically. Let them infiltrate our country. It became politically incorrect after this situation with McCarthy. For, I mean, still to this day, it is very difficult to talk about any communist movement in this country. If you talk about it, well, then you're on the wrong side of the political social ledger. And that is because of how this is going to be handled. MillerCenter.org says, during Eisenhower's first two years in office, McCarthy's shrieking denunciations and fear-mongering created a climate of fear and suspicion across the country. No one dared tangle with McCarthy for fear of being labeled disloyal. If you actually spoke out against McCarthy, you know what McCarthy would do? He would single you out and say, you must be working for the communists. So if you questioned the way he was doing it, then you were going to be seen as a communist. Because obviously only loyal Americans would support him and would see that what he's doing is correct. So everyone that is going, this isn't healthy, is going to go quiet. And he, as a result, McCarthy is going to dominate the culture. Joseph McCarthy in 1952, our job as Americans and as Republicans is to dislodge the traitors from every place where they've been sent to do their traitorous work. So President Harry Truman is the president before Eisenhower. He's going to take the presidency after Roosevelt's going to die. Right at the end of World War II, Roosevelt is in his fourth term, and he is going to have a brain aneurysm and die, and Truman is going to step in. And Truman is, is then going to be reelected. And Truman has one huge problem after World War II. McCarthy. McCarthy is going to drive him crazy. And so I'm just going to read you a quote of Harry Truman. Now, Harry Truman has a whole bunch of quotes because Harry Truman publicly would always be attacking McCarthy. And then McCarthy, of course, attacked back. This is the first, this is President Truman. This is the first time in my experience and I was 10 years in the Senate that I've ever heard of a senator trying to discredit his own government before the world. Your telegram is not only is not only not true in an insolent approach to a situation that should have been worked out between man and man, but it shows conclusively that you are not even fit to have a hand in the operation of the government of the United States. 
So can you see the ire that is being uh, under the surface boiling here? And so Truman is going to handle McCarthy in a certain way, and McCarthy is going to grow 10 feet taller because of it. And the country is going to be like, ah, and guess who's going to be elected president? Not Truman. It's now going to be Eisenhower that will be, be elected president. So that's going to empower McCarthy even more. A Republican's in office now. And so now McCarthy grows bigger than life. Being Joe McCarthy's president in 1953, the job no man wants. So poor Eisenhower comes into this position of being president of the United States. What an honor. And yet the most famous man in the country is not Eisenhower. It's McCarthy. And boy, is he hearing that every day. So here's what the president is hearing all day long, every day, from his friends, from his colleagues, from the media. Come on, Mr. President, do something about McCarthy. Because the president's behavior is, is very dignified. Most people look in history at Eisenhower as being sort of a grandfather president, where he just sort of sat back in his marker lounger and let the government you know, just sort of go, and he steered it with some advice. He was very active. However, he didn't want everyone to realize how cunning he was. And so he actually played that up and I think fed that notion. But McCarthy, meanwhile, is very active and engaged and it looks like Eisenhower is doing nothing. When I would say the exact opposite is true, but that's the way it looked. So I have this whole treasure trove that I, I, I sort of excavated for you guys of quotes from Eisenhower in his private communications. I have a diary entry from Eisenhower. Isn't that cool that you can have a diary entry from a president to like sneak it away and then stick it in a daily thunder? This is so April 1953. Now he was elected in late 1952. So this is like the start of his presidency. He's just getting going. He says, nothing will be so effective in combating his, speaking of Joseph McCarthy, his particular kind of troublemaking as to ignore him. This he cannot stand. I am very intrigued by that quote. That is a great quote because in leadership, I can't say that I've ever dealt with Joseph McCarthy, but I've dealt with people that are constantly baiting, trying to get me to respond to something, trying to get, you know, to egg me on. It's the best way of describing it. They want me to compromise my representation of Christ and get angry. They want me to throw a punch. And so they're just sort of baiting because they can get away with it. You know, they might be mocking the kingdom of heaven. So it's just like they're trying their best. And the key is how you respond. And there's nothing that irritates someone like that more than to act like they don't exist. Uh, that, oh, that'll drive them crazy. And so that became Ike's uh, tactic. So that was April. This is May. And this is Eisenhower's letter to his close friend, Harry Bullis. So Harry is asking why Ike isn't doing something, okay? So this is just a clip from that letter. With respect to McCarthy, I continue to believe that the President of the United States cannot afford to name names in opposing procedures, practices, and methods in our government. This applies with special force when the individual concerns, concerned enjoys the immunity of a United States Senator. This particular individual wants, above all else, publicity. Nothing would probably please him more than to get the publicity that would be generated by public repudiation by the president. 
I do not mean that there is no possibility that I shall ever change my mind on this point. I merely mean that as of this moment, I consider that the wisest course of action is to continue to pursue a steady positive policy in foreign relations, in legal procedures, in cleaning out the insecure and the disloyal, and in all other areas where McCarthy seems to take such a specific and personal interest. My friends on the Hill tell me that, of course, among other things, he wants to increase his appeal as an after-dinner speaker and so raise the fees that he charges. So here's Eisenhower's letter to his close friend, Sweet Hazlitt, in July of that same year, July 23rd. Again, speaking on McCarthy, I think that the average honorable individual cannot understand to what lengths certain politicians would go for publicity. They have learned a simple truth in American life. This is that the most vicious kind of attack from one element always creates a very great popularity amounting to almost hero worship in the opposite fringe of society. And then here's Eisenhower's letter to his brother Milton Eisenhower on October 9th of that year. You say that McCarthy supported me for the presidency because, I, because he believed certain things about me. There is one thing you can assure him. I have not changed. I stand for exactly the same things that I've stood for for many years. He or anyone else can go back over my public statements to the very first time that anyone showed enough interest in me to listen to a public statement of mine, and you will find that I have never indulged in bitter personal indictment or attack. To my mind, that practice smacks of more of the coward and the fool than of the leader. So now we have speechwriter and special assistant to the president. These are notes taken in the White House. It's pretty amazing that you can actually go back and they have these cataloged and you can actually read through them. So this is, uh, C.D. Jackson was his special assistant. And so he would write down all the notes in their meetings. And so this is November 27th of 1953. We're right at the height of something that is hard to describe if you weren't alive in that time. But it's, McCarthy's gonna take this to the next level and he's going to accuse the U.S. Army of housing communism and communist intent. And you have to realize who Ike is. He's a five-star general from that very army. And so it was, he couldn't help but take this as a personal attack, but he's not saying anything. And so this is all amping up. And so you see it in these notes as they're talking. So C.D. Jackson's notes, November 27th, 1953. Tuesday night, McCarthy made sensational radio and television talk. My impression, McCarthy had, A, declared war on Eisenhower, B, by subtle innuendo, had accused Eisenhower of the same thing that Brownell had accused Truman of, and C, had attempted to establish McCarthy as Mr. Republican. D, had attempted to establish McCarthyism as Republicanism, and anybody who didn't agree was either a fool or a protector of communism. So you can see the tension, because now what he wants to do is, if anyone ever says anything to the contrary, well, they're a communist. And once he's established that sort of bastion of safety, then he can throw any arrows he wants. So here's C.D. Jackson's notes on November 30th of 1953. So this is what the president is going to warn the group of advisors there. He's going to say, President warned that appeasing McCarthy in order to save his seven votes for this year's legislative program was poor tactics, poor strategy, and poor arithmetic. And then unless the president stepped up to bat on this one soon, the Republicans would have neither a program nor 1954 nor 1956. So I need to rephrase that. It's, it, the president is warned. He, it wasn't the president that warned. So it's, it's one of his advisors that is warning him to not appease McCarthy. Internal White House memo on December 1st, 1953. 
One of the most dramatic moments in the president's career has arrived. He can appeal to the people now as a popular leader who has been attacked. Further, in speaking out against McCarthyism, he is on the side of the angels. He can answer McCarthyism in the spirit of fair play and in the very words of the Founding Fathers, the Bill of Rights, Washington, and Lincoln. All the internal advisors are thrilled because it's like, this is your moment, President. Take it. And he's never going to make this speech. Everyone is assuming that he is going to make this big speech to denounce McCarthyism. C.D. Jackson knows this is the second, regarding the president's forthcoming speech, which he isn't going to give. So there's this speech in the making, and his, his staff writers are putting things together. And so this is one of my favorite moments, December 2nd, 1953. Big hassle over text is started. So this is the text of this speech. President read my text with great irritation, slammed it back at me, and said he would not refer to McCarthy personally. I will not get in the gutter with that guy. So right there, you have a truth, that there is a certain way that mudslinging works. There's a certain self-interest that is oftentimes involved in political ramblings, but it's not just political. This is human. And the way you deal with it, because what I'm setting you up for in this is to understand that you are supposed to behave as the president. You have a responsibility to represent Jesus Christ. And just like we could say the President of the United States has a dignity, has a certain responsibility to hold his form, even if he's being shouted at, even if he's being spat upon, there's a certain decorum of the presidency. Well, I could say the same thing. There's a certain decorum of the Christian. That when we're struck on one cheek, even though our natural instinct would be to strike back, that we are actually supposed to pause and turn to them the other. And that goes directly opposite of the way that we are naturally wired. We are wired as humans. We are wired with a sin nature that is volatile and wants to express a self-defensiveness and a self-protectiveness. And so if we are assaulted, we instinctively will assault back. If we are criticized, we will immediately find a fault in our adversary and criticize them back. That's normal humanity. But as believers, we have transferred from normal humanity into super normal humanity. And that's the process of believing in Jesus, where we transfer from one side of the ledger to the other, from darkness unto light, from death unto life, where we transfer from self-interest to Christ and others' interest, where we go from no self-control to the control of the Holy Spirit over our life, over our heart, over our mind, over our tongue. But you still need to employ those things. It's like having a sword and a, and a kit of armor, but never wearing it. You could have it, you could hang it in your closet, and someone could say, so do you have a sword? Oh, yes, true. Well, are you swinging your sword? Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to swing it. You see, what's the good of having the weaponry of heaven if you're not employing it? if you're not utilizing it in the battle. And you and I, as believers, have been given something, an equipment to not take the bait. And when that young, irritating character comes into our life and spits in our face and tries to bait us out of our behavior as Christians, how do we handle it? I will not get in the gutter with that guy. What a great quote. At the end of 53... Polls indicated that at least half of all Americans supported McCarthy in his tactics. 
You know, there's only going to be 29% of Americans that are actually uh, against McCarthy and his tactics. Only 29%, which means this man is in control of the country at this exact time. Far more popular than the president of the United States. That's a rough place to be if you're Ike, because he said nothing. This whole year, he's just taking it, taking it, taking it. And so now one of the things I'm not going to expose at any great level is all that uh, Ike uh, Eisenhower is going to do behind the scenes. He's not deaf and he is thinking about it just like we would be if we were being assaulted. We're processing and we're like, Lord Jesus, how in the world am I supposed to walk through this? And he's going through that and he does have plans. He's a very sharp character. Ike Eisenhower, the baited. Joseph McCarthy, the baiter. The baiter says, fight like a man. Come on, take a swing at me. You see, what McCarthy wants is he wants the public to see. He knows he has the public on his side, so he's trying to bait Eisenhower. What are you, with them? Hey, I thought you were, you know, sort of this strong five-star general guy, you know, that could lead nations. Seems like I'm the one leading this nation. You going to do anything about these communists? Hey, come on, Ike. Are you one of them? And so how does he handle this? He handles it in the most shocking way. And even back then, people were so mad at him. Even his friends were mad at him. He's not saying anything. He's not responding the way McCarthy wants him to respond. But the nation wanted him to respond, too. They want someone to give voice to the fact that this guy is off his rocker. The tactics of a seasoned boxer. Let the young showman expend himself. Let him do his dancing. Let him throw his thousand punches. Let him do his bragging. But you fight your fight your way. Now, what I'm describing for you is actually Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to be assaulted, spat upon. I mean, literally, this is, they're going to rip out his beard. They're going to press crowns of thorn, crown of thorns upon his head. And they're going to be going, come on. Take a poke at us. What do you got there, O oh son of God? And he's going to say nothing. This is, I mean, it's a parallel in a beautiful and profound way. Because you have that noisome loudmouth known as the devil. And of course, he's going to find plenty of voice through, you know, the, the Jews, the Romans. And it's, it's not that easy. However, Jesus has a package. He has the package of the Holy Spirit. He has the package of inner governance heavenly governance over his life. And you can say, well, it was God. Of course he had it. Yeah, and the very same thing that he employed is the very same thing that he gifts us to have. So however Jesus is going to walk through that, it's the very same stuff that we have been given. It's the Jesus package. And so what Jesus is going to have to endure this loudmouth, this agony, this revilement, which by the way, if any of you have ever gone through false accusation, it's very difficult to keep your mouth shut because that's not true. And if any of you have ever gone through mockery or disdain or ridicule, you want to strike back with a sly statement that just sort of digs at the other person. You really do because that can't, can't just be left hanging in the air. It needs to be addressed and that's precisely what America is dealing with right now. Those that are standing with Ike are like, buddy, you need to do something. And he does do something. He's actually going to release 
<clears throat> no one knew it at the time, but he's going to release a report, he's going to leak it, which is going to show McCarthy and his assistant, Roy Cohn's, tactics in trying to keep one of their characters on their legal team to fight this fight. And they're going to strong arm the army to not take uh, one of their draftees and to leave, let him stay with them. And it's all it's there. And Eisenhower has this data, which will make McCarthy look really bad. And he leaks it. So I, I don't want to encourage that necessarily, but it is sort of fun in the story. The Eisenhower tactic, I will not get in the gutter with that guy. 1954, and the shocking fall of Joseph McCarthy. This man who is at the pinnacle of our culture, he is loved by all, seemingly. He seems to have no one who could possibly stand against him, is suddenly going to see his world collapse. And to go into that is a whole story in and of itself, which of course I would have thought that I would have taught on that. But that's not what I'm going to teach on. But what I'm going to say is at the end of 1954, the Senate is going to vote to censure him. And, I mean, overwhelmingly so. It's like, shut up. And he is never going to regain his platform. He's never, his bold voice is just gone. This man is going to literally be emptied. And in 1957, he is going to die. Uh, and very likely just because of what he went through, the trauma, because of extreme alcoholism. He's basically going to drink, his, drink himself to death. It's a very sad story that I don't have a positive spin on that side, but what I can say is it's very interesting to just see it just historically. You have the man who's coming out and swinging all the punches, and Eisenhower who's just standing there taking it, taking it, taking it, taking it. And then in one year, McCarthy is completely silenced, and no one ever heard Ike say anything. It's a pretty profound thing in history. The principle of the shield wall, to win against the Vikings, it must hold together. So if you go through my series called Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great, you get to learn about shield walls, and they're really cool. They were the uh, impossible to penetrate offensive maneuver, and, so, and they're also a defensive maneuver, but shields overlap, and there's a certain way you would hold your shield up, and you would march forward, and if you hold your shields properly, an arrow or a spear cannot get through them, right? And so you actually are able to move forward, and, and there's always... Soldiers right behind. So if one guy goes down and the other guy sticks his shield right in. And it's basically unstoppable if you do it right. So the enemy wants to break your shield wall. How would they do that? Well, oftentimes they will do it through intimidation tactics and fear tactics. If they can get one guy to run in the shield wall, if they can get one guy to turn around in fear and give up, it'll break the whole shield wall. And so you have to maintain the whole shield wall to maintain the shield wall. So the Saxons in you know, Alfred the Great's day are fighting against the Vikings. And the Vikings are bad dudes. I know we have the Minnesota Vikings and you guys always like them, you know, and they're, they're a great team. But the Vikings in reality were very bad characters. You can like the Minnesota Vikings, you don't want to like the real Vikings, okay? Even though Eric is a Viking name, so that's sort of scary for me. Uh, but to win against the Vikings, it must hold together. So the goal of the Vikings, to get the Saxons to fear and to abandon the shield wall. Okay, so in a strange sense, there's always this tactic of the enemy to break apart the defenses. And so if we're in the Ike Eisenhower situation, which we are, I mean, I have been in that situation so many times in my life, 
where I'm being badgered, I'm being hit, I'm being accused, I'm being reviled, and the enemy is attempting his best to draw me out, to draw me out of that shield wall, to have me let go and say, I'm done with this. I, uh, we've, we've joked at, at Ellerslie that we all have our uh, escape pod that we sort of have in our mind. Like for Leslie and I, it used to be we were going to escape to New Zealand and change our names. Uh, that was, you know, the, the enemy always like submits an, an idea. Uh, Sandy was going to go home and just retire and knit all day. Remember that, uh, Sandy? I remember Ben Zorns when he was here, he said he was going to go and uh, lead worship at a mega church. That was his escape pod. It's like, there's no way I'm going to have so much spiritual hazards as I do in a small little group like this. If I went to a mega church, church, I wouldn't have any problems. Uh, <laughs> so it's to get the Saxons to fear and abandon the shield wall. To have even one part of the shield wall turn will destroy the whole shield wall. This is an unstoppable force if you keep moving forward, but if one part of this fails, the whole thing will fail. To win against the Vikings, don't get into the gutter with them. And believe me, they were hanging out in the gutter. So here's, a, uh, here's how it works tactically. You, you start your shield wall, and you're marching from 60 feet out. When you can start hearing the voices, you're going to hear the Vikings, and they're going to start flighting you, is what it's called. And that is, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. They're going to try and disturb you. They're going to talk about your women. They're going to talk about your wives. They're going to talk about what they're going to do to them. I mean, they're, they're literally trying to destabilize you. And the Vikings are pretty tough characters. And so you're thinking, if we lose to these guys, it gets really bad, right? And so the flighting begins. And flighting, for whatever reason, is effective. And that's why boxers do it. They're trying to intimidate. There's something about having that aura of indestructibility that you don't care, that you know you're going to win, that actually can shake the other opponent. And so that's what flighting is. At 40 feet out, they start throwing the flying spears. They'll throw them up into the air and they'll come down and they come down with such force that they'll actually pierce through the shields and can actually kill the people behind it. So, I mean, it's, it's not like you, are just, you have your shield out there, right? But this can kill you. So could you imagine if you saw uh, these flying spears coming at you, how easy it would be to just say, I'm out of here. And that's exactly why they do it. The flying spears, I mean, they know they're not going to take out all of the Saxons but they do know that they could potentially intimidate one. And if they can break this apart, they've got them. 20 feet out, the berserkers start sprinting toward you. You guys know who the berserkers are? The berserkers, uh, they're going to be men that strip themselves naked, paint their bodies with all sorts of weird stuff, and uh, I don't know if they're guzzling some alcohol or some other uh, chemically uh, uh, sponsored things that are going to do weird things in their brain, but they're also allowing demons in. Uh, and so you have one of the weirdest concoctions imaginable known as a berserker. And these men, naked men, are going to start sprinting, hollering. They'll have like, you know, fur on them and they'll have, you know, these headdresses on them. Ah! At the shield wall. How are you doing when you're standing down there and you have that screaming at you? It is meant to destabilize you. Its entire point is that. Now, these guys had superhuman strength, too. Like, they were giving themselves to demons to have supernatural strength, and it was so unnerving. What are you going to do? Are you going to break your shield wall? And so, in history, that's one of my favorite things, is to see how Alfred is going to handle this. Because in the past, they had broken apart. And now, suddenly, Alfred is going to rise up, and he's going to say, I know your game. And he's going to 
basically call their bluff. And he's going to tell his men, we stay together no matter what. Fear not, stand your ground and don't fall for the enemy's flighting, flying spears and streaking madmen. Listen to this quote from Dr. Benjamin Merkel. With one last shout, Alfred, the ring giver of Wessex, urged his men to be true to their vows and fired their hearts with courage as the Saxon line braced for the coming impact. Across the shrinking gap between the two armies, the last of the Viking taunts and the various pagan invocations of Odin swirled in the air and soon turned into one indiscernible, gore-hungry, red-faced, maniacal shriek. In that deafening roar of blood-curdling shouting and horrific howling, the two shield walls crashed into one another. Now you need to listen to my series to see what's going to happen. The Saxons win! Oh, it's amazing. It's a, it's a great storyline. And the Vikings go down, but it's simply because the Saxons would not give way. They would not play the Vikings game. They would not get into the gutter with the Vikings. Like water off a duck's back. The enemy flights, the Christian ignores the enemy's boasts. The enemy throws his spears, the Christian trusts that God will repel every fiery arrow. The enemy goes berserk. The Christian remains completely calm and stays in position. I don't care how much noise the enemy makes, and believe me, it's, it is hard to ignore it, but he makes noise. At Ellerslie, we call it alarms, and they'll usually go off. I remember we were over in the 300 wing. Do you remember that, Sandy? We were over in the 300 wing, and we were even talking about the, how the enemy has been sending off alarms and giving alarms, which is just to distract us. We're like, oh, I need to address that. And while we were praying, an alarm went off. I mean, just as we were praying, alarms everywhere, noise everywhere. It's the berserker rage coming against you. You are moving forward in the kingdom of heaven, and the enemy doesn't like it. So remember it was come on, Mr. Eisenhower, or Mr. President. This is come on, Mr. Messiah. Do something about the Romans. You see, the Messiah was supposed to come and he was supposed to address the Roman Empire. That's, they had it figured out doctrinally, even though it doesn't say that in the Bible. They just had it figured out. That was their, their conclusion. And so if he really is the Messiah, well, then do something about the Romans. And he wasn't doing anything about the Romans. Come on. Come on, Mr. Messiah. Come on, Mr. Messiah. Do something about these religious fakes. It's a really good point, too. You have to admit. I mean, he did give his diatribes and his statements that they're whitewashed tombs. He had his great statements, right? Hypocrites. But he didn't take them down. And he's God Almighty come to this earth. If he hates them that much, why doesn't he address that and just cleanse Israel of this disaster known as religious hypocrisy? Instead, he even allows it to crucify him. I mean, it's a pretty challenging thing to swallow. Come on, Mr. Messiah, do something about these revilers, mockers, and God-haters who are pinning him to a cross, and he does nothing. Come on, Mr. Messiah, if you really are the Messiah, I think you would do more than this. Classic. You see, Jesus is doing something that is going to save the world. He is going to redeem humanity from sin. He is crushing the head of the serpent. But no one can see that, obviously, in the moment. For each of us, we do something far greater when we don't play the enemy's game and get into the gutter. The Christ, overcoming, the Christ principle of overcoming, wielding the opposite spirit. The enemy comes in with one spirit, you respond in a different one. If he comes in with flesh, you respond with spirit. And that's exactly how it works. 
Isaiah 53, 7, speaking about uh, the cross 750 years before it happened. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Gentleness in the place of harshness. Humility in the presence of arrogance. Love in the face of demeaning threats. Kindness in contrast to spite, mockery, and revilement. Mercy in light of the condemning voice. Silence in the midst of accusation. It looks weak, guys, doesn't it? And it's really hard as men to think that I'm supposed to do that? When McCarthy is spitting in my face, I'm supposed to do that? He's accusing me of being a communist. I'm a five-star general that helped the United States win a war. I mean, come on, what, question my patriotism. And yet he's going to say nothing. Jesus is the son of God, pure, holy, righteous. And he's going to be treated as a common criminal. And he's not going to open his mouth. And he's going to give gentleness, humility, love, kindness, mercy, and silence. And he's going to win the day. And just as we're going to see McCarthy fall to pieces in 1954, we're going to see the kingdom of darkness dismantled at the cross. We're going to see that what looks like weakness is actually the greatest strength. Final scripture, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we win our battles? With good. Well, what's good? I mean, that's a relative term, don't you think? Well, it's derivative, it der derives from the word God. So how about this? Overcome evil with God behavior. Well, does that help you understand good? God behavior. What's his behavior? I, I don't know what that is. That's, that's obscure. Well, we just went through it. Jesus. Look at Jesus and you'll understand what sort of behavior we overcome good or overcome evil with. It's Jesus' behavior. The way Jesus is going to deal with his adversary is technically how we are called to do it as well. Father, I ask that you would work this Jesus package in us, that we would be transformed, Lord, to not behave as normal humans, but to behave in a superhuman fashion, enabled by the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. Lord, we want to bear the sort of fruit that is able to handle our circumstances the way Jesus is going to handle the cross. So Lord, we ask for that power to be at work within us. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.